Good morning. We're glad that you're here today. It's a beautiful day. Very grateful for such a pretty day. Very thankful for the opportunity to be together today. We trust that this has been a great week. We hope and pray that you will have a great week. And uh, very grateful for all the blessings that we enjoy in life. Today we want to continue a series of lessons that we have been looking at recently. Basic questions that many people have, that all of us have as Christians, and there are many in the world today who are not members of the body of Christ, and they have any number of questions, and there are those that will, from time to time, ask us specific questions. And so what we want to do is be able to answer them, and we want to be equipped. And so I know that this series of lessons has been somewhat unorthodox in the sense that we don't really have a basic text, and we're not exegeting, exegeting that text, but nonetheless, we are trying to look at what the Bible has to say. And so today, I'm going to be talking about a subject that I was asked to deal with in a very specific way. It has to do with balancing the goodness and severity of God. The passage that was read a moment ago brings to mind the goodness and severity of God, and so today we're going to try to answer some questions that relate to God's goodness as well as His severity. And so we want to begin our study together by first and foremost asking this question, a question that many people have. What is God's goodness all about? And I would begin by saying that there are many levels of God's goodness. Many, many years ago, the psalmist said, the Lord, He is good. And God's goodness is reflected in so many ways. In Matthew chapter 5, in verse 45, Jesus said that God makes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. And we talk about God in His providence and His providential care for the human family and how blessed many of us are on a regular basis. As a matter of fact, James would say, every good gift and every perfect gift comes down from above in James chapter 1, verse 17. And then, of course, you remember the psalmist in Psalm 68, when he said, Blessed be the Lord who daily loads us with blessings or benefits. And so we are all the recipients of so many blessings on a daily basis. As a matter of fact, we all enjoy blessings every single day, every hour. And it would be difficult for us to catalog all the great blessings that we have. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul stood before the people in Athens, Greece, God said, or rather Paul said about God, that it is in Him that we live and move and have our every being. Now, by way of God's goodness and our spiritual blessings, there would be no way that I could overemphasize the tremendous blessings that we enjoy as a result of God's goodness. I mean, you think about the fact that God, before He ever created man, devised a plan to save man. And so, when you look at what the Bible has to say, John, of course, in the Revelation in chapter 13, verse 8, talks about the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God, in creating man, endowed the human family with the ability to make choices, recognizing that sometimes we'll make good choices, sometimes we will make bad choices. And so the fact that God had a plan in place before He created man 
lends insight into the fact that God understood, given the opportunity to make choices in life, that ultimately we would transgress His divine will and thus stand in need of redemption. And so we all need God's redemptive blessings. And the Bible tells us over and over again that we can share in those blessings. Now specifically as we think about God's goodness, in Romans chapter 2, Paul deals with God's goodness. And he said that the goodness of God leads to repentance. And then in 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 15, Paul said, account that the long-suffering of the Lord is salvation. So you step back and you think about God has blessed you with life. He's blessed all of, all of us with life. And God has articulated the need that all of us have, and that is for salvation. You remember Jesus came for the purpose of seeking and saving the lost. And so in light of that need to recognize that all have sinned and all have come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23, and all need that cleansing blood on Calvary's cross. And so God's goodness reflected in the fact that He has given us time and opportunity to turn to Him. Now there's a second question that is really tied to the first question that we want to think about for a moment. Do we really understand and appreciate the incredible sacrifice the Lord made on our behalf? You know, when you think about that question on its surface, the tendency would be to say, well, surely all of us understand and appreciate God's gracious gift. But then the flip side is, maybe not so fast. It might well be the case that for many of us, we don't understand. And we haven't processed the tremendous sacrifice that God made on our behalf. Do you remember in Romans chapter 8, Paul said that God spared not his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. God gave, as Jesus would say, his only begotten son, the only one of its kind, and God was willing to literally put his money where his mouth was. God expresses his love for us, but then you think about demonstrating that love. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the Bible says that God is love. And yet this God of love recognized the intrinsic need of man, that is, for a Savior. And so God was willing to go to great lengths to save us from sin. And you think about the life of somebody like the Apostle Paul. Paul had been a persecutor. He identified himself as a individual, as someone who was insolent or violently arrogant. And Saul of Tarsus did everything within his power to destroy Christianity. He was opposed to those of whom Luke, of whom Luke wrote, followers of the way. And yet, you well know that Saul of Tarsus came into contact with Jesus on the road to Damascus. And that transformed his life. Having obeyed the gospel, Paul would later say, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Don't you think that Paul could process and give great a grateful heart for the magnificent grace and mercy of God, Paul would later say, 
The grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. I think Paul understood something about this great gift. In Galatians chapter 2 at verse 20, Paul would say, It is no longer I who live, but Christ liveth in me. He said in the latter part of that verse, speaking of Christ who loved me and gave himself for me. So as we step back and think about the tremendous sacrifice, I mean, go to the cross and look at Jesus lifted up between two thieves, male factors. And here's Jesus dying for the sins of the human family. Jesus had experienced the ordeal of a trial that was nothing more than a farce. And then to be scourged. John said the soldiers plaited a crown of thorns and placed it upon his head. Pontius Pilate had him scourged. And then as Jesus made his way to Golgotha, Matthew said they compelled a man by the name of Simon of Serene to bear his cross. And as we've said before, Jesus was not bearing his cross. He had no cross. But rather he was bearing our cross. And Peter said he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He vicariously suffered, bled, and died for us. That's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, him who knew no sin, he became sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now there's a third question we want to look at this morning. And the question is this. Can we reach a point of no return in life? Let that question sink down into your mind for a moment. Can we reach a point of no return in life? What's being asked is simply this. Is it possible to get to a point and time in my spiritual life that my state is sealed? That the opportunity to make a change, that that door has been forever closed? And the answer would be yes. It's possible to get to a point and in life where we can't change, where we won't change. And maybe that's the operative word. We won't change. Solomon said in Proverbs chapter 4 many, many years ago, guard your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues of life. Do you remember in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul talks about those who have a seared conscience. And the idea is that their conscience has become branded or seared to the extent that it's beyond repair. Many of us have seen animals branded in days gone by, cattle, steer. And you know they take that branding iron and that branding iron is red hot. And they apply it to the side of an animal. And what happens over days, that seared skin scabs over. Later, there's no feeling. 
Those nerve impulses or endings have been seared. There's no feeling there. And what Paul is saying is that we can get to a point in time in life when there's no feeling. That conscience has become seared. In Ephesians chapter 4, Paul talks about the Gentiles. He identifies blindness of their hearts. He goes on to talk about the hardness of their hearts. And he said they had given themselves over to lasciviousness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. So you think about somebody who has become blind to the truth of God, and to that, their heart has become hardened, and they're steeped in that lifestyle. They're not interested in changing. And then I think about the words of the Hebrew writer in Hebrews chapter 3. And the writer there is addressing Hebrew Christians that were on the verge of going back to Judaism. As a matter of fact, some had already gone back to Judaism. And the writer is contrasting the law of Christ to the law of Moses. And in effect, he's asking the question, why would you go back to an inferior system? The blood of Jesus is sufficient to save from sin. That old law could not remedy the problem of sin. And so in Hebrews chapter 3, he would encourage them, he would exhort them to take heed lest they be deceived by the deceitfulness of sin. Lest their hearts become hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. So when you begin to look at the scriptures, what the writers are saying is it can, that your spiritual life can get to a point to where you're not open to change. You're not willing to change. Do you remember in John chapter 12 and verse 37, Jesus is in a conversation with the Jews of his day, the religious leaders of his day, often posed to be great antagonists to his teaching. And Jesus in John chapter 12 verse 37 said, Though he had done many signs before them, they could not believe. Now I want you to think about that for a minute. Go back and look at all the great miracles that Jesus performed. I mean, Jesus had the ability, the power to perform sign after sign after sign. In chapter 11, he raised Lazarus from the dead. I mean, surely that would be a miracle or a sign that would have gotten attention, wouldn't it? And yet in that same context, many of the Jews, rather than believing in him, began to plot and plan how they might put him to death. And Jesus is saying, look, even though I did so many signs among you, you saw them firsthand. He said, you couldn't believe, you can't believe. In John chapter 5, Jesus said, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. The signs or miracles that Jesus performed authenticated his claims of deity or sonship. John would say in John chapter 20, many of the signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but he said these are written. Why? That you might believe. So they had the evidence. There, were, there was really no reason why they should have lived in disbelief. I mean, think about the Jews for a minute. 
Into their hands had been entrusted the oracles of God. If anyone should have been able to see firsthand, based on Old Testament scripture, the fact that Jesus was the Messiah, the anointed one, they should have been the people. And yet, as John said, he came to his own, his own received him not. Now there's another question that we want to ask, and this question also tied to the previous one. Has God ever given up on people? Let me invite you to look with me at Romans chapter 1 for a minute. In Romans chapter 1, Paul deals with the Gentile world. In essence, the Gentile world were steeped in idolatry and immorality. And Paul points out that based on creation itself, they should have recognized that there is a God in heaven. But he said in verse 21, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts. And he said their foolish hearts, and I would underscore that, were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Now drop down, look three times, listen to what Paul is going to say about the Gentile world. Verse 24, therefore in light of these facts. Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness. Look at verse 20. Note if you would verse 26. For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Verse 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, a reprobate mind. What's Paul saying here? They had reached a point and state in life when God said, you know what? I'm done. I'm giving them up. Now if you go back to the Old Testament in the book of Hosea, in chapter 4 and about verse 17, the prophet in the long ago, and you remember in that context, the prophet is talking about God's people. And he leveled an indictment against the children of Israel because he said there's no truth or mercy or knowledge of God in the land. As a result of that, they were living wicked lives. In verse 6 he said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. But then down in verse 17, here's what he said. Ephraim has her idols. Now listen to him. Let her alone. In other words, if that's the course that you've chosen and you're so dead set in moving in that direction, have at it. So think about that for a minute. We can reach a point in our spiritual life when we resist the overtures of God through Scripture and we say, no, 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 we're not interested, we're not willing to change. God says, you know what, if that's, if, that's, if that's how you want to live your life, then so be it. A great example of this is Pharaoh. Back in the book of Exodus. If you look at Moses and Aaron as they stood before Pharaoh, the Bible talks about how Pharaoh hardened his heart and how God hardened his heart. And really, if you look at the whole text in its entirety, 
What the Bible is teaching is simply this. When man chooses a direction in life, devoid of God, then he will allow nature to take its course, so to speak. And that hardness is the result of that choice. In other words, if that's how you want to live your life, if you refuse to believe in me, you refuse to follow me, you refuse to live for me, then that's fine. That's your choice. But you'll suffer the consequences. There is a fifth question that we want to ask this morning. What does the Bible say about the severity of God and our accountability? What does the Bible say about the severity of God and our accountability? Romans chapter 11, in verse 22, Paul said, Behold the goodness and severity of God. There's a balance there. God is infinitely good. He is intrinsically good. Everything about God is good. But in maintaining that balance, Paul speaks of his severity. In that context, severity toward those who fail, the Jews of his day, that is Paul's day. Now we talk about God, and there are a lot of folks in our world today, and rightly so, want to accentuate the love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God, and all of those facts are just that, they're facts, indisputable facts. And God is a very gracious and loving God, and God has gone to tremendous lengths to save us from sin. But what sometimes we fail to take into consideration, what sometimes we choose to purge from our mind, is the fact that God will hold us accountable for our lifestyle. We live in a day and time, and look, things haven't changed. When you go back to the Garden of Eden, and Adam blamed God, really, he blamed Eve for the predicament he found himself in, they had transgressed the law of God in the Garden of Eden. So when God came on the scene to interrogate Adam, he said, the woman whom you gave to me, he indicted not just Eve, but also God. But nonetheless, we live in a day and time in which it's very difficult for people to accept responsibility for their actions. You look around, it's everywhere. We always want to say somebody else, it's somebody else's fault or it's, it's this circumstance or that circumstance or this is what prompted me doing this or doing that rather than just saying, you know what, it's on me. Rather than manning up or womaning up and just acknowledging, you know what, I did it. Do you remember David in Psalm 51? David committed adultery with Bathsheba and David had the presence of mind to say in the presence of God, I've sinned. So what about accountability? Will God hold us accountable for our life, our lifestyle, how we choose to live? The answer is yes. 
Here's what Paul said, As I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us must give an account of himself to God. Now, what he's saying is simply this. There's coming a day, God, in which you will stand in the presence of the Lord and give an account of how you've lived here on planet Earth. It may be the case that the overtures made time and again through the gospel were rebuffed by you. It may be the case that you say, it's not for me, I'm not interested, don't want to live that way, and look, you have that right. No one's going to coerce you, nobody's going to make you serve the Lord. But know this, you'll stand in the presence of God. As Paul said, we shall all stand before, listen to him, the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what we've done, whether good or bad. So bear in mind, God's going to hold us accountable. In Revelation chapter 20, John, in the long ago, said, I saw the small and the great standing before God, and he said, the books were open. Another book was open, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of the things which were written in the books. John there in the Revelation drawing a picture for us of that final day. And the picture is that of Jesus on his throne and the human family before him. And the books are opened. This book right here. And God is judging the hearts and lives of people by his standard. And as John said, they were judged every man according to their works. So will God hold us accountable? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. So as we balance the goodness and severity of God, I would want to close with this. Please don't leave here thinking that God is not interested in you as a human being. I don't want you to leave here thinking that God does not love you because the Bible says God is love. And Jesus said, for God so loved the world, that's you. God loves the human family. And because God loves each and every one of us, His desire is that we might be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Let's just say that you're here today and you have a problem that many folks have. It's called sin. The blood of Jesus is not a part of your life. What would you need to do? You need to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord Jesus said, except you believe that I'm He, you'll die in your sins. In your sins, Jesus said, where I am, there you cannot come. And then to be willing to repent of all your sins. In other words, cease living for yourself. Say, so you know what? That old way of life is a dead end. I want to do what's right. So repent of your sins. Change your life. Confess the name of Christ before others and then be buried with him in baptism. When you do that, you contact the blood of Christ. And the blood of Christ is what washes away all of our sins. Acts twenty two sixteen. And then be faithful 
until death, and the promise is the crown of life. If you're here today and you're not what you need to be as a Christian, let's just say you need the prayers of the church. We'd be happy to pray with you and for you. And the assurance is that God will forgive every sin, 1 John 1, 9. Won't you come as we stand and sing?